hear the word of the Lord. He went away from there and came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, the brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. And Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. And he could do no mighty work there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. And he went about the villages teaching. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Amen. You may be seated. Pray with me. Gracious, merciful Father, What a joy it is to be able to come and to sit at your feet, to hear your word read. I pray that you would encourage us this morning in your word, that you would convict us where we need convicting, that you would illuminate the eyes of our hearts to see, to hear, and to believe. I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. You know, when I moved into my first apartment alone and finally got to taste freedom in my life as a young 19-year-old man, I did what any sensible person would do and decided I'm only going to eat what I love for dinner. No one can stop me. No one can keep me from the things I love. And so that was, of course, bacon. And uh, so every night I'd eat at least one full package of bacon by myself. And it was awesome. Don't, don't judge me. You would probably do the same thing, too, if you could. Uh, but no one could tell me, that's enough. No more, Craig. That's not good for you. Uh, it's like, you know, my kids often say this to me, uh, that when they grow up, they're just going to eat candy all day long. And, uh, but we all know that candy, and yes, even bacon, when eaten every day for every meal, it gets old. Eventually, we're going to go tired of it. Eventually, it's not special anymore because it's become familiar to us. I mean, it's probably happened to us that have been coming into this building for the last year. When we first came into this building, we thought, wow, what a beautiful building. And when you walk in, you still probably think it's beautiful, but you think to yourself, eh, but I've been here before. It's, it's become normal. It's familiar. I mean, this is not unlike what is happening in our passage this morning as Jesus is going into his hometown the people that grew up with him, the people that know him, they're so familiar with him that they can't actually see who he is. They can't understand or even comprehend who this Jesus now is because they think they already know who he is. Right? They've seen him grow up. They've been around him since he was a child. They know him, and yet we find here that they don't really know him. They've actually domesticated him. They've caged him. They've limited Jesus to their knowledge of him. I mean, isn't this a problem for us, too, that we limit who Jesus is to our knowledge of him? We think we know who Jesus is. We've read the Bible stories. 
And so we stop learning about him. We stop seeking him. We stop being challenged and amazed by him. And when we read something about Jesus that's a little bit wild to us, which when you read the Gospels, you always get to that part. You're like, I forgot about Jesus saying that. That's uncomfortable. When we get to those places, we kind of default to whatever we previously believed about Jesus. And we experience, I think, the effects of this uh, on more than just the personal level. But actually, we experience the effects of this on a communal level where we've created an entire culture around Jesus, where we've taken Jesus, right, the King of Kings, the, the Lord of Lords, the one who's created and sustains all things. We've taken that guy and we've made him a commodity. We wear the Jesus jewelry. We put on the Jesus T-shirts. We listen to Jesus music. We are entertained by Jesus stories on the television. And now this is the Jesus that we're the most familiar with. And this ends up shaping our, our vision of Christ more than Christ shapes our image of Christ. We're, and what we're going to find this morning is that when we do this to Jesus, when we take Jesus and we make him familiar, we end up taming the real Jesus. And this is perhaps the most dangerous thing you can do with him. Because here in our story this morning, what we find is that the one thing that can actually seems like it can stop the power of Jesus moving in a place is this kind of cultural Christianity that has domesticated him and tamed him for our entertainment. And this morning, the challenge that we're going to have is entering into a lifetime pursuit of knowing Jesus. Because we can never come to the end of our knowledge of who he is. This is because he is God. He is without full comprehension. So the question for us as we come to this text this morning is this, how do we know Jesus? How do we actually come to know Jesus? And our text answers this question for us in a strange way. It answers this for us in, in the negative sense. And the first thing we find is this. The first thing we find is the problem of knowing Jesus. The problem of knowing Jesus. Look with me back at verse 1. It says, He went away from there and came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. Right? For those who haven't been with us, Jesus has just brought a little girl back from the dead. His biggest miracle to date has just happened before this moment. The first resurrection recorded of this 12-year-old girl that he brings back from the dead. And imagine how his disciples must have been feeling in that moment. They must have been absolutely floored by Jesus and his power. They'd seen him do some incredible things, calming storms, healing the sick. But this is the first time they've seen him. He's got power over the dead, too? They must have been thinking, nothing can stop us now. And even going to Jesus' hometown, maybe they thought that there'd be a parade. It's going to be a type of homecoming. People are going to love us because we're with this guy. They're going to feed us. It's going to be amazing. And then we find verse 2 and 3. And on the Sabbath, he began to teach in the synagogue. And many who heard him were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary, and brother of James, and Joseph, and Judas, and Simon? Are, and are not his sisters here with us? This was not unusual for Jesus to go to the synagogues to teach on the Sabbath day. In fact, this was often where his teaching took place. And people being astonished by his teaching was not unusual either. People typically were astonished by him, by the amount of wisdom, by the power his teaching is profound. It's amazing. And we see here that's evidence that he wasn't just teaching, but he's performing miracles. It says mighty works were done by his hands. He was doing the things that he'd done every stop along the way up until this point for the first five chapters of Mark. 
He's been doing the same thing. He's been proclaiming the gospel, proclaiming his kingdom, which is at hand, and calling people to repent, to come into his kingdom. And yet what we find here, which is strange, is the astonishment that we find is not the good kind of astonishment. If we look at it again, he, they ask these questions. Where did this man get these things? What is this wisdom? How are such mighty works done by him? Which at first glance, you know, when I first read this, I think, oh, this almost sounds like admiring questions. Wondering, how is this man so special? This is amazing. But then you read further, and it's almost like they're implicating that Jesus is counterfeiting his miracles. That his wisdom is not his own. Isn't this, isn't this just the carpenter? Right? Isn't this the son of Mary? His mom's right there. His brothers are there. His sisters are right there. He can't, this can't be the same guy. He can't be this wise. So the problem wasn't that they didn't know who Jesus was. They, they knew Jesus in ways that we're actually never going to know him. This is a small village of a few hundred people. They would have seen Jesus grow up in their town. Maybe Jesus built their houses, worked on their roofs, shared meals with them. They knew him. They knew his family. They knew his family home. The problem was that they, know, they knew Jesus so well. They were so familiar with him that they couldn't see who he actually was. It's like reading someone's biography, memorizing it, assuming that you actually know the person themselves when you, when you don't. They couldn't see the revelation of a deeper identity. He was fully man, that his biography is true, and yet he's fully God. Their knowledge of him was limited. They only saw the man. So much so that it says here that they took offense at him. They were offended by him, offended by his authority, almost as saying, how dare you tell me to repent and come into your kingdom? Who do you think you are? How dare you tell me that your kingdom is coming? Your house is right there. That's your kingdom. Well, we know you, Jesus. You can't pull this over on us. We know you. Right? They, they thought that they already knew Jesus. They thought they had him figured out. And as soon as Jesus didn't fit into their box, they dismissed him. Maybe even more strongly, that they thought that Jesus actually was the problem. And this is the problem of knowing Jesus in this way that we can know all about him. We can think we know him. And in this, we stop actually pursuing him. We stop being amazed by him because we domesticate him. And I think that, you know, we as a people can flirt with this problem more than we realize. We make Jesus in our own image, right? We have the, the peace-loving Jesus on one side and the, the table-flipping Jesus on the other side. The gentle and lowly Jesus versus the Jesus who comes with the sword to judge the living and the dead. And we're tempted to isolate these two visions of who Jesus is and isolate them from each other. Taking one side or the other, somewhere in between, but friends, there is no division in Christ. His wrath and his love are actually not opposed to each other. They actually work in concert with each other, in perfect harmony. You don't want a God without justice, and you don't want a just God without love. It's an impossible thing. He is everything Scripture says about him and more. He transcends the categories we have for him. Not that we can't know about him. There's much that we can know. But we can sometimes sit in our culture of Christianity for so long, we're so comfortable, that it shapes our knowing Christ more than Christ does. And we cease to be amazed by the songs that we sing, by the scriptures we read, by the confession on our lips, by the table we come to each week. This is a challenge for us. This is our problem, too. And in this text, before we get a bit of a solution to this problem, our narrative takes us one step further into this negative sense of knowing Christ. Before we're let off the hook, we're shown why this is actually so problematic for us. 
And we find it here, and the second thing is the consequence of knowing Jesus. The consequence of knowing Jesus, when we end up knowing Jesus only in a familiar sense, when we create him in our own image, we end up caging Jesus and stripping him of his power. And he end up, ends up having little effect in our lives, which is what we find here, verse 4 and 5. And Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor, except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. And he could do no mighty work there, except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. Listen, uh, earlier in Mark, a legion of demons came and fell at the face of Jesus and were cast into it, pigs. Right? The sick have been brought to Jesus all throughout this book from all the entire known world, and Jesus heals them. The storms obey the voice of Jesus. Even the dead are brought back to life. Nothing could stop the mighty works of Christ, except we find this. He could do no mighty work there. This should cause us to be a little frightened. We should ask, what is it? What makes Jesus not able to do a mighty work? What we find is the rampant unbelief. We see this in verse 6. And he marveled because of their unbelief. And this, this world, word for marveling, this, this is the only time it's actually used in the negative sense here. What should we pay attention to? Jesus marveled at them, not because of their great belief and their faith, he marveled. He was wowed by them, in awe of them, because they couldn't believe who he was. They could see his teaching, they could see his healing, and even still, they couldn't believe. Why didn't they believe? Because they thought they knew him. They couldn't see Jesus, even though he was right there. He was teaching, he was healing. And they couldn't overcome their preconceived notions of who he was. Because of this, their lives remained unchanged by Christ. His work in their lives was limited by this, and he ends up going to other villages. And this is the consequence in our own lives, too, that we can make Jesus so familiar that he actually doesn't change us. We can walk the walk of cultural Christianity, we can look the part, and yet not know Jesus at all. And when we do this, he can do no mighty works in our lives. One example of this is this, that if, if you're hiding sin from God and from others, how are you able to experience his marvelous grace in a real way? Experiencing his power. And this, you're not limiting God's ability to forgive your sin, but you are limiting your power to be transformed by his grace, by his mercy. It's like a child who's always sitting at the edge of a pool and never experiencing the joy of swimming. Unbelief renders Jesus powerless in our lives, which, you know, the first eight chapters of the Gospel of Mark are all about Jesus establishing power and authority and here, in the face of something that seems so small, he runs into a wall and he leaves them behind. I mean, this seems daunting for us to overcome because who among us hasn't made Jesus too familiar in our lives? Who among us hasn't put Jesus into nice and neat boxes and tried to keep him there because it's so nice and tidy. Who, who among us doesn't like nice black and white world where we know what to do and what not to do and everything's simple? Who among us doesn't sometimes try to hide our sin from God because we're afraid? And in that we don't experience the transforming effects of his grace and his mercy. You know, there's this tool that we use sometimes in preaching where we, you know, we try to afflict the comfortable 
and we try to comfort the afflicted. And yet here in a text like this, it just seems like there's no comfort to be had. It's challenging. It's damning. It should frighten us. What do we do with this? Well, in the end, what we actually find is that the problem isn't that we're too familiar with Jesus. The problem is that we're not actually familiar enough. The third and final thing we find is the answer to knowing Jesus. Right? The answer to the problem of knowing Jesus is to actually know Jesus more, to actually know him, to never settle in our knowledge of him. So when we encounter something uncomfortable from Jesus in Scripture, we don't say, I probably didn't mean that. That doesn't sound very Jesus-like. But we actually wrestle with it, and we let it change us. And we aren't to reduce Jesus down to the sum of his parts, but we're supposed to be the ones marveling at him, in awe of him. You know, whenever I read the Gospels, there's always something that Jesus does or says that, that surprises me. Something that I forgot about, which is both good and bad. It's good that, you know, I'm challenged by him, and I'm reading it in a way that I can be challenged, but it's bad, bad because it also means that my vision of Jesus, even in this moment, is not fully formed yet. There are aspects of Jesus that I know really well, and other aspects I tend to ignore, and we all do this. We can never come to the end of our knowledge of him. Again, this isn't to say that there aren't knowable things about him. There are things. Facts of him don't change. Our theology about who Jesus is, that he's fully God, that he's fully man, is not what's being changed in our reading, but it's how we limit Christ and what he, what he can do in our lives and what he has called us to do. And we are called to be amazed by him. We do this, we struggle with this, though, because it's our nature to do it. You know, even in the garden, didn't God say, you know, isn't there great sin reducing God, making him in their own image, and trying to make themselves in the image of God? The only way we can fight this is to become more familiar with who he is, to never settle, to not cage him, to not be entertained by him, but to repent and submit to him. This was the teaching that he was telling the people in this chapter. He was telling them to repent and come to him. We need to listen and we need to do it. So what does this actually look like in our lives? Well, I think one of the ways in families, this means modeling the real Jesus for our children and to each other. Actually confessing our sin to one another, showing that we are being transformed by Christ. Real transformation that comes when we step out is something that never gets boring. This is something that never grows dull. In our church community, it's us following Christ and loving God and our neighbors, taking Jesus at his word, serving the least of these, loving the fatherless, submitting to him so Christ can actually transform our lives and our daily living so we no longer just live for ourselves, but for our brothers, for our sisters, for our neighbors. This is a call to submit our lives to him. This is where repenting and living into his kingdom lead us. This is a Jesus that's not boring. This is a Jesus that cannot be caged by our imaginations. This is a Jesus that does, never grows old. Constantly being challenged by him, staring at him and gazing upon him, fighting for our sanctification never gets boring. Our life only gets boring when we stop fighting, stop running the race. This is the kind of thing that never settles. So if the Jesus that you've experienced in your life, if the Jesus that you have in your mind is a boring Jesus, an uninteresting Jesus, an irrelevant Jesus, then perhaps you've domesticated him. You've made him merely familiar in your life. And the answer is to actually repent and to believe that Jesus is who he said he was. A pastor, an acquaintance of mine, tells a story of his time in St. Louis. And 
One of the neat things about St. Louis is that the zoo there is free. Land was donated to the city, uh, and so the, the zoo is free, and it's a great place to go if you're in seminary there and you don't have any money. And so you go to the zoo, and at first it's awesome. Who doesn't love the zoo? You get to see all these animals. I remember growing up going to the Woodland Park Zoo, and I just, I loved it. It was always a magical place. But even the zoo, after a while, uh, would become boring. Say, oh, okay, there's a lion. Seen that before, you know, ice cream cone. Okay, let's go look at the sea lions, see if they're doing anything interesting. Um, and he tells a story of these gorillas that he went to go see. And there's this, you know, typical gorilla uh, exhibit. There's this big glass you can go and watch the gorillas behind and they're just kind of sitting there not doing a whole lot and he and his friend got this idea in their heads hey we want to try to make the gorillas act like gorillas and so they're used to like kids walking up there and like smashing the glass and they don't really aren't affected by that kind of thing and so they did a little research and they found out hey if I try to stare down this gorilla I might actually make him a little upset and make him do something so him and his friend they go down there and they just lock eyes with the alpha male and they could see, he's, after a while, he starts to get a little agitated. He starts to move around a little bit. He's starting to get uncomfortable. All of a sudden, out of nowhere, he charges the glass and starts banging on the glass and opens his mouth and shows his teeth and roars. And of course, all the children in the area just freak out, and they start running, screaming. Everyone's running for the exits. And they're kind of like, this is amazing. This is awesome. Uh, his wildness woke up. And he remarks that seeing a gorilla be a gorilla is never boring. Seeing a gorilla in action is always captivating. If this is true of a gorilla, how much more true is that of the God who made the heavens and the earth, of Christ? A caged cultural Christianity gets old for us because it has no power. It's like a domesticated gorilla. But the real Jesus, the real Jesus never gets old because the real Jesus has power. The real Jesus changes our lives. The real Jesus who bore the sins of the world on himself never gets old. The real Jesus who is the God incarnate, fully God, fully man, always begs us to come and be transformed to his image. This is what it means to know Jesus, to stare at him, to gaze upon him, to never grow tired of knowing him more. Right? Paul compares the Christian life often to that of running a race. We never come to the end of this race until we meet Jesus face to face. And so as we run this race, we don't settle but we read, we pray, we worship, and we act. We let this actually change our doing. May we be at this church, a church like this. It doesn't settle for just a familiar Christ. It doesn't change us. But may we do the work of knowing Christ, that he might transform our lives, because this is the Christ that others will want to come to know too. You want to know why the church doesn't grow us? Because we don't actually live out our faith. It's not interesting to anybody because it doesn't do anything. Imagine if we actually took Jesus seriously in, the, in our lives, in this community, and with our neighbors. That's a Jesus that people want to come and know. May we be a community that displays that well. Pray with me. Holy, merciful God. I confess that I often grow bored of you. I'm sure many of us in this room have been guilty of this fact. Help us to stare at you. Help us waken us from our slumber that we can know the real Jesus. May you transform our lives. May you transform our families. May you transform our children, our neighbors, our cities. Because you are the only one that has the power to do these things. 
Give us faith to step out, to trust you at your word, to lean on you. And when we're tempted to domesticate you, stop us from it, Father. For it is a dangerous mistake to make because we need your power in our lives. We need your working in our lives. Apply this word to us, we pray in the name of Christ, by the power of your spirit, amen.